Let's look in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, last week, uh, you and I both thought that I finished the series on pulling up the weeds uh, from the garden of everyday life. And I was approached by a young, now I don't know that amen, I, I don't know how to interpret that amen. <laughs> so glad you were done, so glad it's continuing, I don't know. Don't clarify right now. But uh, anyway, uh, you and I both thought we were finished uh, thinking about pulling up the weeds in the garden of everyday life. And I was approached by a young couple who are members here at Emmanuel. I was pulled aside by Tim and Emily Benninger and asked if there was any way I would consider preaching on the Christian spiritual warfare from the rest of Ephesians chapter six. Now I was told it was unrelated, but Emily did cook or bake a loaf of sour, send it to my house on Wednesday, which I'm sure wasn't bribery, and did not, did not influence my decision, though it did taste very good. But the, uh, the reasons that Emily gave essentially went like this. The first one was very profound. I mean, you're right there. Uh, you know, we're in Ephesians 5, and, and there's Ephesians 6 just waiting for some attention. And then the second one, one I think that all believers would share, is I, I need more understanding about the battle that we're all engaged in with the powers and principalities and the demonic in this world. So anyway, I got to thinking about the coming weeks and realized next week we were gonna be interrupted from being in Matthew anyway because of the Love Your Ministry Ministry Fair, and the week after that is Joshua Saylor, our first, our, our church planter to Moorhead's first sermon, and the week after that is Easter, and so Matthew is just having a hard time making a re-entry, and I saw this lonely Sunday all by itself, and I thought, okay, we can focus on Ephesians 6 uh, this morning, so did pray about it. And it seems right to think about this topic that really is so, so vital for our Christian understanding and for our Christian faithfulness. So let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and through to verse 20. I won't be covering verses 21 through 23, and I'd appreciate if after service if no one asked me to handle those passages as well. So Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 1 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to, sta done all to stand firm, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness 
and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. The words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you that you would make us aware of the one who likes to hide himself, that you would make us people who are not ignorant of his schemes, and that you would make us a people who stand. Lord, we pray for those who aren't merely battling the devil this morning, but for those who are under his complete sway and under his dominion. We pray you to deliver them out of darkness and into his marvelous light, into your marvelous light. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, was written to make sure that we do not misunderstand the Christian life. We've been looking at Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, and we've been seeing that the Christian life really is about following Jesus in the details. That following Jesus is not something we do Sunday mornings alone, but following Jesus is something that is being done by husbands and wives in the home, parents and children, and all workers and all employees in all the various work situations we find ourselves. That we find here that our Christianity affects every single sphere of our life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Jesus is, is calling for us to acknowledge and to follow his lordship in our lives. But you could almost get the impression, looking at Ephesians 5 and 6 so far, that the Christian life is fundamentally just about applying certain principles. And maybe if you'd read Ephesians the whole way through, you would say the Christian life is about believing certain doctrines and applying certain principles, believing certain truths and applying certain principles. And you wouldn't be wrong. That certainly is what the Christian life is. Believing what God has revealed to us and following God's way. That is the Christian life. But what Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 makes plain is that it's not simply a life of following principles. It's not simply a life of applying the truths you learned this Sunday. It is an all-out spiritual war. That the Christian life is a battlefield. That we do not begin to try to apply these principles on neutral ground. But we are immersed, from the minute we are newborn babes in Christ, we are immersed in a battlefield. And the main enemy, for sure, is our own sin. But our own sin is not the only enemy. We are so easily tripped up because there is one who's always trying to trip us. We're so easy to cause to fall because there's always someone who's seeking to push us down. 
The only enemy in the Christian life is not merely the world out there or even your heart, but there is an active, intense, powerful, knowledgeable devil whose aim is to destroy the Christian life and witness. And so we're not simply enjoying a blank slate where it's like, hey, go practice God's principles. Go, go try out the commands of Jesus. Rather, from the minute we're newborn babes, we're immediately immersed in a battle where there's opposition to every single step we take for good. And so in the face of this battle, it's God's great desire for us to stand in his strength. In the midst of this battle, it's God's great desire for us to stand in his strength. And Ephesians 6, 1 through 10 is, is actually really just a poetic way, a, a way laden with these military metaphors that essentially says, this is the Christian life. Here is how you get the strength you need to keep from falling. Here is how you get that strength. And what it is, is you put on this armor. You put on this armor. So in the face of this battle, it's God's great desire for us to stand in his strength. Let me just read you these opening verses and you'll see the burden the Apostle Paul has for us to stand and specifically to stand in his strength. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And you should kind of put a how in there. How do I Stand strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. How? Put on the whole armor of God. That's how you stand strong, is you put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against all the schemes of the devil. And so the, the whole message of the whole passage is really given to us right in those opening two verses. Stand strong. How do I stand strong? You put on the whole armor of God. And what does the whole armor of God do? It enables you to stand even in the face of all the schemes of the devil. All the imagery in this passage, all the belts of truth and breastplates of righteousness and sword of the spirit are really simply poetic ways of saying, here's how you apply God's strength. Here's how you put God's strength into action in your life. Beloved, don't, don't miss this. There isn't anyone here, if you've got any kind of a Christian conscience, who doesn't hear sermons on forgiving, loving, serving, submitting, and think, I want to do that. I want to do that. And then you get home and another reality emerges. The, the reality of, I'd rather scream at you right now. I'd rather serve myself right now. I'd rather suck bitterness like a lozenge in my mouth right now. I, I don't have any interest in actually applying these things right now. What, what, what happens 
between the moment of desiring to obey and then the moment of desiring to disobey. Well, certainly your own sin is involved. Certainly the temptations of the world are involved. But what else is involved is there is a master tempter and accuser. There is a master deceiver who can deceive even the godliest of God's elect unless they are regularly and continually strengthening themselves in the strength which God supplies. Unless there's an active recognition of the power that alone is in God, you will get destroyed every single day. You'll get slaughtered even in the midst of your best intentions. Unless there's an awareness of how to put on the power of God in the midst of our battle. And so what I want you to notice this morning, very simple, is I want you to notice the goal of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And that goal is to stand. That goal is to stand. I want you to notice the obstacle of Ephesians 6 through 20, and that's the devil's schemes. The reason you don't stand is because there's actually someone scheming to keep you from standing. And then I want you to notice the provision of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, which is God's strength. God gives his strength, and it's not just sort of a raw power, like plugging in electrical circuit, but it's actually a power that provides moral strength to overcome the devil's schemes. And so what we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, is we see our great need to stand, the great enemy of schemes from the devil, and then finally the strength which God alone provides. Now, let me begin by pointing out the goal of Ephesians 6 through 10, and let me make this point as clearly as I can. One of the things that happens when you start talking about spiritual warfare is some of the weirdest theology you ever could hear comes in. If spiritual warfare seems to be the dumping ground of Christian weirdness. And so you get people teaching on, they teach on Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and then what are we supposed to do in light of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20? Well, you should walk around your, your church building or walk around your neighborhood calling down territorial spirits and calling down uh, spirit, spiritual uh, high places and, and, and powers and principalities. And, and, and all of that sounds like, I mean, it sounds good if spiritual warfare is fighting the battle of Jericho one more time. But what's striking about Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is how normal the application is. The application is so normal. What's the goal of spiritual warfare? Look at verse 10. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Standing. Not glamorous, not exciting, makes for terrible television. Just standing. Look then again at verse 13. I'll start in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand. 
in order to not succumb to satanic temptations, to sexual immorality, or lying, or selfishness. You need this power just so you'll be able to withstand. And then if you go on a little further in verse 13, you'll notice this again, so that you'll be able to do, able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, what's the goal? To stand firm, stand firm. And if that wasn't enough, verse 14 launches us into the imagery of the soldier's uh, paraphernalia, the soldier's uniform, with these words, verse 14. Stand therefore. If you are maintaining your belief in Jesus Christ and growing in your walk with him, you are absolutely triumphing over the powers of darkness in this world. All that is intended in spiritual warfare is happening in your life. If you are continuing to believe amidst all circumstances and growing in faithfulness amidst all temptations. There's nothing more glamorous than that, but there is actually nothing more glamorous than that. Because what that means is you're learning to stand tall in Jesus Christ. You're learning to fight temptation. You're learning to reach a spiritual maturity. If you re-enter the home and all the siblings provoke you all the ways that they provoke you and then you provoke them all the ways that you provoke them and someone actually stands up as godly and says something nice, the devil is being trounced in that minute. That's what's happening. You're standing. And if everything gets taken away from you in your life, like it was all taken away from Job, and you say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, the devil's works are being destroyed. You're standing. That's the goal. The goal is a simple standing in our faith and in our belief. No need to walk around a building. There is some mention of territorial spirits in Daniel chapter 10, but no strategy for how to bring them down. They're destroyed when Daniel stands. The, the victory over the evil tempter and accuser happens when an ordinary man or an ordinary woman walks in holiness. That's the real victory. That's the real thing. And you see that in the way that Paul uses the word stand in other parts of the New Testament. He says in 1 Corinthians 10 through 12, let anyone who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. So what's the goal? To not fall into sin, but rather to stand in righteousness. Or take the great resurrection passage, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. That's the goal of the Christian life, to stand in the gospel. There you are, you're aware of all your sins, you're aware that you should be condemned, but you take your stand in the one who defeated sin and death and the devil. You take your stand in the one who paid for all your sins and disarmed the devil. And there you are with all these provocations to sin. You could follow this group of friends, you could follow this sinful desire of your heart, but instead you take a stand in righteousness and right there all the works of the devil are being destroyed in that minute. That's the apostle's clear intent, that you stand. 
that you stand, that you stand, that you be able to withstand. Now, I want to make sure this is abundantly clear. And I've, I've already alluded to this, but I want to make sure that we're crystal clear on this. It's not an accident that the place, that the passage on spiritual warfare comes right after all the focus on daily life. And here's our tendency when reading, uh, reading Ephesians, okay? It's almost like chapter one, the doctrine part at the beginning. Then you got the practical part. And then you come to 610, you go, and now for something completely different. It's not completely different. It's tied to the very basics of the Christian life. The devil could care less if you march around the building of banners. What he would love to do is destroy your home. What he would love to do is destroy your holiness. What he would love to do is to send you into anger and bitterness, frustration, greed, envy, jealousy, peer pressure, fear of man. That's where he would love to take you down. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to us, not accidentally, hey, listen, here's how you work at home, here's how you live at home, here's how you live at work, and I just want you to know something, the devil is after that. And Paul's goal is that you would be able to stand. Well, now that we've seen the goal, if we get spiritual warfare, what will happen? We'll stand. Now we need to understand the schemes, the schemes. Why is it so hard to stand? It's easy to hear a sermon about standing, that's easy. It's standing that's hard. And the reason it's hard is because the devil, who's smarter than you are, he's been at this longer than you are, and he's more powerful than you are, is scheming for your downfall. He is making, there is someone right now planning to help you fail. That's a sobering thought. I mean, just think if, if, if you knew one of the members of your family, and sadly a few of you are in this situation, but if you knew that one of the members of your family stayed up late every night plotting your demise, you think you'd be freaked out? And yet there is a wily old serpent who along with cosmic powers and principalities works night and day to think about how they can take you down. What to play on so that they can take you down. And you see that in verses 10 and 11 following again. Finally be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. What does the armor of God do? That you may be able to against the schemes of the devil. The devil is a schemer. He is not uh, an impersonal force of evil, but a personal reality, a person who can think and plan and scheme for the downfall of believers. And so let's just uh, survey a little bit what this passage and the rest of the scriptures tell us about the devil. What do we know about the devil? Well, the first thing we need to say is that he's real. He's real. 
The devil is not simply Paul's way of personifying uh, the, the, the sort of vague evil in the world. Rather, the vague evil in the world is there because there is a real person who is evil to the bone, evil to the very core of his being. Notice it says here, we wrestle against him. Now, different sports involve various levels of contact. Baseball is a low, low contact sport. I mean, there's four spots on a baseball field you might come into contact with another player, but not even then all the time. But I've watched wrestling. I mean, your head is in that guy's armpit while he tries to wrap his legs around your face. It's, it's a deeply intimate engagement that's involved. And it's the one that the apostle chooses to describe our wrestling against powers and principalities. It's, it's not something vague. Now we have drone warfare where literally a guy could be in his pajamas with a joystick and a high-powered computer sending bombs overseas. It, there's a detachment that can be there between the soldier and the battle. Not so here. This is an active, personal, an intimate war with a real being and his minions. So he's real. Second of all, notice he's evil. Notice the words used to describe him. He's over this present darkness. The devil and his demons are the spiritual forces of evil. They attack truth, righteousness, and peace. They sow doubt. They attack the word. They're against all that is good and right. Every impulse to love, to not love your wife, not submit to your husband, not honor your parents, is his evil work. Then notice that he's powerful, but not all powerful. Do you see that there? Listen to the words again used to describe him. The devil and his minions, they're rulers, cosmic powers, authorities, forces of evil. So the devil's no pushover. He took down Adam and Eve. He uh, crucified. He inspired the mobs that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one behind the fall of every Christian. He's powerful. But did you notice the implication of the passage? We wrestle not against powers, against flesh and blood, but against these powers. And if you put on the full armor of God, you can stand. The implication is that defeat is not imminent. I remember when my son was a, a first wrestling, when his first year of wrestling, the coach was this old salty dog coach who'd seen a million wrestling matches, uh, and he would just decide beforehand whether my son even had a shot to win in this particular wrestling match. And he would show with his body language and what he said, whether, whether he was even in the running in this. And so I knew that if the coach began to cheer for Luke, there was a shot. But if he didn't, there was no shot. And the coach was quite accurate in his assessment of the situation. In this situation, the Lord is saying, you can stand. It's not a foregone conclusion that even though the devil is more powerful than you, has more experience than you, that you will fall. In fact, you can stand because what's available to you is the very power of God. Greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. The devil is powerful, but not all powerful. He knows so much, but he's not all knowing. 
Very often we get the idea that the devil is a, a second power center to God, that sort of the universe is a yin and yang universe where white and black are even. But this is not true. The devil knows a great deal, but he is not all-knowing. And Martin Luther put it, he's God's devil. The devil can't read your mind. Well, then how can he tempt me so effectively? Well, believe it or not, he's seen people like you before. I know you're a total original, but there's been a few that are close. And the devil is more than aware of what it takes down to take what it takes to take down a man or a woman. Notice too that he has a global power, but he's not omnipotent. He's not omnipotent. The devil is not at all times and all places. We see him with Adam and Eve. We see him with Jesus in the garden. He is not a being capable of being everywhere at all times. You say, well then how can he be tempting me and tempting the other guy and tempting my friend in China all at the same time? It's because he is over a horde of finite beings. He's over an army of tempters and demons. You get some picture of the array right here in this passage just by noticing what we've already read. We, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, plural, against the authorities, plural, against the cosmic powers, plural, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces, plural, of evil in the heavenly places. And so there isn't one devil who can communicate with every individual the same way God can communicate with every individual because he's omniscient. But there is a devil who can exercise a worldwide reign, not because he is omniscient, but because he's over a horde and an army that can affect every area of life. And this devil deals with us intimately, but not all-knowingly. We've already used the illustration of wrestling. We have to realize that the, our wrestling with the devil is close, it's nearby. Our engagement to the devil is not something that starts when you hear a sermon about it, but rather the devil is engaged with every believer tempting, accusing, sowing false truths, sowing doubts. You know, the question always comes up, can the devil put thoughts in our mind? And there has to be a sense in which the answer is yes to that. We see the devil speaking to Adam and Eve. We see the devil speaking to Jesus Christ. But then when we don't see the devil speaking to Peter, we hear Jesus saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Whatever Peter thought about Jesus avoiding the cross, the devil had put that thought there. The, the devil will inundate you with thoughts. Sometimes he will inundate you with thoughts because just the sheer volume of battle, even though you're not giving in, just the sheer volume of battle can be discouraging. Now what's amazing here, and let me use a few more illustrations to show why the devil can affect our thoughts. Why do we put up the shield of faith? Well, because somebody's raining doubts down on us. Why do we fasten on the belt of truth? Well, because someone is insinuating lies to us. Can they come through false teachers? Can they come through false lies in books? Of course, but they also can come even when we're not around anyone. 
There were church fathers in the early church uh, who would leave the wicked city of Rome because they wanted to get away from all the temptation. And guess what happened? They found themselves being tempted in the deserts. The devil is able to get at people wherever there are people, and he is able to constantly be throwing his temptations and his accusations at them all the time with such intimacy that it can only be described as wrestling. That you're really wrestling to take captive thoughts that are being inundated to your mind. And the devil, we have to understand this, this is an important distinction. I know we're doing a little theology of the devil here, but, but hear this, this is an important distinction. Even though the devil can insinuate thoughts to our mind, can throw temptations at our mind, can be the accuser of the brothers, and God never lets him do it in such a way that we say the devil made me do it. You see, the reason the devil's powerful temptations and accusations work is that there's part of you that likes what he's offering. He's always trying to entice us to those sins which there's still remaining corruption in us to want to go after. And so whenever a Christian falls into sin, we can say the devil enticed, the devil tempted, the devil accused, the devil bombarded, but the Christian sinned. There's no the devil made me do it in the Christian life. But when you're aware that he's attacking, he's tempting, he's accusing, it does put you on high alert to recognize, I need to fight it. When I wake up in the morning, I wake up on a battle scene. I wake up somewhere where I could be inundated with temptations any moment and for all moments. Now, so far, I've only described really the devil's being and power. We haven't even described his schemes at all. The one I just described, who knows so much, can be so many places through his demons, who has so much power, who knows human nature, this one never battles us like the armies of the Revolutionary War. Wouldn't it be nice if the battle battled like the armies of the Revolutionary War? Remember how they battled? They stood in a line, and they said, hey, I'm, the, I'm against you. And then if you were on the other side, you stood in the other line, and you said, I'm against you. And then you shot, bad, deadly, but you know what's after you. The devil, on the other hand, comes like an angel of light. He never comes with an open assault. He always comes lying. He always comes deceiving. This is so, so important to understand. Now think about some of the ways he deceives. I'll just go through a few. Two of his favorite tactics are to add or subtract, sometimes almost imperceptibly, to the Word of God. What's the first line we hear the devil say in the Word of God? Has God said? Is that really there? And, and then catch how subtle this is. It almost seems like too small a lie to matter. But when the devil is dealing with Adam and Eve, what does he say to Eve? He says, or, or he, he goes along with the lie that's being told that you can't just not eat it, you can't touch it. And it seems no big deal. I mean, wouldn't that be just a wise safeguard not to touch it either? 
But in adding to the word of God, he, 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 he incites the sense in the soul that God is stingy and rigid and legal. And you know what happens in our souls when we sense that God is stingy and rigid and legal? We want to grab what he's holding back from us. And you know, it's so tempting as a preacher, isn't it, just to add a little to the word of God to keep people away from sin. It seems so harmless. Just, just say a few extra things to keep people away from sin. And guess what? It has no power to stop the indulgence of the flesh. This is what the Colossian heresy was all about. Don't eat, don't handle, don't touch. Stay away, stay further away from all these things that could lead you to sin. And what does Paul say? It won't keep you away from sin at all. Adding or subtracting to the word of God never creates a heart for God. It never leads a person away from demonic truth. First Timothy 4, what does the devil do? He, he incites false teachers who teach that you can't be married and you can't enjoy certain foods. Oh, it seems so holy. I'm going to be single for Jesus. Seems so holy. Not going to eat that. And not receiving God's good, good gifts, what does it do? It incites the sense in the heart that God is not good. And it leads to more and more sin. The devil's always kind of coming here. And he'll come around and he'll, he'll incite you to licentiousness. Come, just indulge your pleasures. And then as soon as you do, he'll crush you with accusations. He's wicked to the bone, to the core of his being. One of the things the devil will do is he will take the virtues of a Christian. Now listen to this carefully. He'll take the virtues of a Christian and twist them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's a church that's practiced church discipline. That's good, right? Try that one more time. When a church biblically and faithfully practices church discipline, that is good, correct? Okay, good. Okay, and so the devil is going to capitalize not on your weakness, but on your virtue. And so here's what we read in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, for such a one, this guy has been disciplined, the punishment by the majority, so the majority of the congregation had voted to punish them, for such a one, this punishment is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So here's a guy who's been disciplined, he's repenting, and the church is maybe delaying and restoring him because they're trying to preserve holiness, right? And he says, but don't, you gotta get in there and comfort him or he'll be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. But what's so fascinating is that when Paul summarizes his concern, he says he wants them to do this so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. So you gotta understand this. Satan will not just try to come and capitalize on your weaknesses, he will. If you give him a foothold, he'll you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. But he will also capitalize on our virtues. And this is one of the reasons he can, he can catch so many Christians off guard. They're, they're trying to be holy, they're trying to be holy, and they wind up somewhere they didn't mean to be. Because the devil will take what's good in us and try to press it to an unbiblical extreme. Very similarly, I already referred to this passage, but Ephesians chapter four, verse 26 through 27, says be angry and do not sin. So there's a time to be angry. Some things ought to make us angry. 
but then do not sin. And then be aware that even good anger has an expiration date. It's like milk in the fridge too long. He says, do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I just held on to bitterness one night and the next morning you found that bitterness insurmountable. You couldn't stop the bitter thoughts. What is that? That's giving a little place for the devil and the devil taking a mile. This is the schemer we're dealing with. This is the one who doesn't want us to stand. This is the one who we're being offered strength to overcome. Okay, so we've seen victory in spiritual warfare is what? That you stand, not glamorous, just daily, just normal. And of course it's so hard because there is actually a schemer. Your own heart could lead you astray, your own flesh could lead you astray I should say, but but there is a schemer who actually wants to capitalize on that all the time. And God's answer is the armor of God. Now here's the problem that we come to with the armor of God. The problem with the armor of God is we can tend to view it as a talisman, some sort of magic potion we take, an amulet we wear. But the armor is not magic. The armor is Jesus. The armor is simply a marvelous, biblically saturated way of Paul saying, trust Jesus, follow Jesus. And you know what? If we knew our Old Testaments better, we'd see it right away. We'd see it right away because this comes up in the book of Isaiah in chapter uh, 57, I believe. Isaiah chapter 57, oh, 59, I'm sorry. In Isaiah chapter 59. I'm gonna read to you uh, a fair bit from Isaiah 59. And I want you to hear this because you need to understand that when Paul thinks of this soldier, he's not thinking necessarily about a Roman soldier. He's thinking about Isaiah chapter 59. So Isaiah 59 describes times that could be just like our own times. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. Sound familiar? And righteousness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So if you're godly, you just wind up getting eaten up. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. And on top of there being no justice, in Isaiah 59, there was no good guys to help the situation out. There was absolutely no one who would come and help the situation out. There was no good guys left. Verse 16, he saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then you know what he does? See if you recognize any of this language. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Here's where it gets good. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself as zeal, as a cloak. This is a prophecy of God bringing Jesus into a wicked world, that Jesus would be the one who would put on a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness. He would come in. He would be the mighty warrior who would redeem the lost and destroy those who wouldn't repent. And what's happening in Isaiah, in Ephesians chapter Chapter 6 is Paul is saying, now you put on Jesus. Jesus was sent to be the soldier who would destroy the works of darkness. You put on Jesus now. 
You trust him. You follow him. You look to him. And each of the, each of the uh, elements of the armor, it's so good because you can see how the devil schemes and you can how, see how Jesus' strength strengthens us. The first piece of the armor. Most people know the first one. It's the belt of truth. Why? Because the devil lies. He never tells the truth. Whenever he wants to justify perversion, he does it in the name of love. Whenever he wants to erect new standards of uh, holiness, he does it in the name of righteousness. And what we're being told here is we need to gird our, our, our lives with Bible reading, with knowledge of God's word, with knowledge of God's truth, or we'll get slaughtered by the devil. But if we know the word, you'll be able to stand. And then he says, put on righteousness as a breastplate. Breastplates protect all the most important organs. They, they protect the core of your life. And what do we need to do? You need to walk in righteousness. Not your own righteousness, but the righteousness God forms in you. You need to walk in that. Why? Because if you leave a chink in the righteousness of your life, the devil will exploit it. You remember the great scene in The Hobbit where a smog is flying over Lake Town? and wanting to take it and everything out. And there's one shot to shoot an arrow through the one chink in Smog's armor. And that arrow flies right towards that one chink. That's exactly what the devil will do. You leave some little area of compromise, you leave some area undealt with, unrepented of, he will rip you to shreds over it. He won't say, oh, we all have weaknesses. That's what God does. The devil will destroy you. He will rip you in half from that place of seeing the one place you've left open. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, live a life of holiness, live a life of righteousness, repent of your sins. It'll be like a breastplate that defends you. And then he goes on and he says that you need the, the shoes, the gospel shoes, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. When you trust the gospel, it gives you peace with God. And if you're not trusting the gospel, you won't have any readiness, because I'll tell you what happens to people who aren't trusting the gospel. They want to laid out on their back full of accusations and condemnation. They wind up discouraged. They have no more readiness. The, the wind gets sucked out of them. But the more you trust that I'm justified by God, I'm at peace with God through Jesus, the more you're ready for whatever the devil will throw at you, whatever accusation he brings, you're like, thank you for that accusation. Jesus died for that. And I'm at peace. Not only do we put on the shoes of the gospel of peace, but we also put on the shield of faith. What does the devil do? He launches all kinds of doubts at us. I love that he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Because you know what destroys faith more than anything else, in my experience? Circumstances. It's all the things that look like God's not working. It's all the places where it looks like God's not answering. It's all the places where it looks like God's being cruel to me or harsh to me or unfair to me. And in all of those situations, we have to put up the shield against the devil's lies. No, God is good. He loved me and gave himself for me. And I grab a hold of the cross as a shield against all the accusations that God's not going to be good to me. 
and it defends me. And not only that, we can extinguish all the flaming darts, the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation. I love the image of the helmet of salvation. I love it, first of all, because what does the devil want to do? He just wants to bash your head around. He wants to get you disoriented. And you need to have a helmet on. What's the helmet? Well, by salvation here, and I don't have time to go to Thessalonians and justify this to you, but maybe you'd take my word for it. By salvation here, he means final salvation. That when the wrath of God comes, you will be protected from it. The devil wants to beat you up with all kinds of circumstances, and there needs to be this helmet that says, on the last day, I'm saved. When it all goes down, I'm going up. I, I, I will not be destroyed. And that becomes a helmet for me. It protects me, keeps me sane and sober from losing my mind. And then finally, the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. We need the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which every time a lie comes at us, there's a counterattack from us using the word of God, just like there was with Jesus. Every time Jesus was, was attacked by the devil, what did he do? He answered with the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, this is so important. We need to be able to say, when temptations come our way, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me all the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. The last thing I'll mention and then I'll close is this one isn't given a metaphorical sword or breastplate. It's just prayer. Paul ends with prayer. Think about the picture that he's now painted of the average Christian in the Christian congregation. The devil is coming at them with all kinds of lies, and what are they doing? They're just strengthening themselves by, by trusting every element of the gospel. The gospel's truth, the new life they've been given to walk in righteousness, the peace they've been given with God, the sword they have from the Spirit, and what happens when they've strengthened themselves? They just keep calling out to God for more strength. Notice how many times the word all is used here. It's just striking. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Beloved, when you get time in your prayer closet to pray, when you come to the prayer fellowships before this service, when we pray with the pastor in this service, we're doing one of the greatest acts of spiritual warfare that can ever be done. We're asking for the power of God to be given to us over the power of the devil. We're asking for all the saints to be able to walk in holiness and for all the preachers to be able to continue to preach boldly so that the devil's work is destroyed by the power of God. So, we are a people whose highest calling is simply to stand and to stand in the most ordinary aspects of everyday life. And the reason that's so hard is not just because we're bent on sin, but because there is an actual schemer with more power than you can ever deal with on your own. But in the armor, we're given a strength. We're given God's strength, given to us in all these beautiful images. And as that's appropriated and believed and walked in, there's no need to fall. There's no need to fall.
We can stand against the devil's lies. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We ask you to please pour out your spirit on us so that we can hold on to your truth, grow in your righteousness, know your peace, be protected by your hope, and fight with your word and with prayer. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.